0: everybody. Welcome back to Frame FM. I'm David Honig with my co-host Robbie Mitchell. And today we are thrilled to have Greg Johnson, CEO of Invoca on the show today. Greg and I have gone back for many years, back in the Salesforce days, and we'd love to talk to you about what you're doing today and the incredible success that you've seen with Invoca. So Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks to you and Robbie for having me. And Honig, it's always such a pleasure to see you. And I hate to sound like an old guy, but reminisce about the old days as well as talk about the new days too.
0: Yes, I would love to. I would love to. Could you start and tell us what Invoca is to the audience? Sure. So Invoca
1: is a conversation intelligence platform. We mainly serve big consumer brands, mainly digital marketing teams. So think about consumer brands that spend a lot of money on digital marketing on Facebook and Google but ultimately sell relatively complex or expensive products or services and drive revenue through their contact center. And say some of our customers include companies like DirecTV, a lot of healthcare systems, University Hospitals, Dish Network. Typically, these are companies that you as a consumer, you engage with someone as an advisor as part of the purchase process. And so what we help these companies do is understand how all the digital marketing investments they're making Are driving those kind of people centered conversions and sales in the contact center.
0: It's amazing. So basically, you're bringing CMOs and contact center leaders together when they were historically and maybe even now siloed.
1: Oil and water. No, it's amazing to me. So, just for background, David and I got to know each other a little bit in our time working together at Salesforce. And so, I spent time and where I met David is is Salesforce acquired companies in the marketing space. So, companies like in you know, a buddy media Radiant 6 exact target and so i understood the world of digital marketing pretty well and i had worked with the service cloud team on some product earlier in my career at salesforce so i understood the contact center pretty well and i was just flabbergasted when i got to invoca how you have these companies that spend hundreds of millions to billions of dollars in digital marketing and make tons and tons of revenue in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollar revenue in the contact center And those people generally don't work with one another and their their systems and their data don't really connect very well. And that means they're usually pretty inefficient in how they're spending their dollars to drive customer acquisition. And from a consumer perspective, it makes for a pretty disjointed experience. So yeah, in a way, Invoca is a bridge between the world of digital marketing and the contact center really infused with AI and understanding those human conversations And a lot of the work that we do is not just about technology, David, but as you said, it's actually about bringing those teams together and helping them understand one another. You know, I think of the world of marketing is like fun, creative people, happy hours on Friday. And then the contact center is a little bit more traditional, managed teams, very closely, much more structured. So there's a lot of cultural DNA difference between those teams, too. But if you can get the two working together really well drives really great customer experience and much better revenue growth, ultimately.
0: And with that being said, first of all, it must be a huge challenge, even now, to have those silos broken and collaborate for the greater good of the customer and the company itself. But are you seeing changes in how contact centers are hiring for a different set of skills of those customers that use your technology?
1: Uh, I mean, I would certainly say... One of the things we see is contact center teams are starting to talk about data-driven technology concepts, kind of like marketers. So for example, the idea of CDPs or customer data platforms had been very well understood in the marketing world, I would say, for five, six, seven, eight years, right? Like we work with a number of different CDPs. Telium is a huge partner of ours. We do a lot of work with Adobe customers as well. Suddenly you have folks in the contact center talking about that data profile, talking about orchestration. And so you're starting to see some convergence in how the two teams talk about the customer journey and how they talk about data and how they talk about delivering that seamless customer experience. But they're oftentimes just coming at it from very, very different directions and have very different sort of priorities in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and how they think about the world.
0: Where does Invoca sit? within the the CDPs of the world?
1: I would say, if I step back for a sec and I say, what is at the core of Invoca technology? I would say it's a couple things. Number one is bridging what in the marketing world is called online to offline customer journeys. It's just kind of this connection between digital and the contact center. So that's number one. Number two, we're an integration company. We integrate with everything. So we integrate with Google, Facebook, sort of trade desk, anything in the digital advertising world, CDPs, CRM like Salesforce and Microsoft Dynamics, contact center platforms like Nice in Contact or Genesis or Twilio, Five9. Also, I would say we're an AI company. One of the reasons that I was really interested in coming to Invoca in 2016 is I've done a lot of work at Salesforce around unstructured data, kind of human to human conversations. And I was really intrigued with Invoca because Invoca was very early to trying to understand the meaning and the intent in human to human voice conversations even back in the days when nobody really knew what an Alexa device was. So for us, it's really about those three things is how do we take data around the digital journey and connect it to conversations? How do we use AI to understand those conversations and and get structure around it? And then how do we integrate that data everywhere, essentially in the front office kind of customer engagement stack? So that if you're a marketer, you're making better decisions. If you run an e-commerce part of a website, you can understand, hey, why are people bailing out of e-commerce and actually speaking to an agent in the contact center? Is that a value-added human interaction? Like when I'm getting a mortgage for the very first time and I'm super nervous, is that mortgage going to fund in time? Or is that a waste of time where like I'm AT&T and I'm just adding a $10 Apple Watch add-on to my monthly subscription? And like, frankly, I shouldn't have to talk to an agent to do that. And then we help contact centers so that when an agent picks up the phone, they have an understanding of what you as a consumer are interested in. We ran a really interesting project at DirecTV where we simply put in front of the agent what was the consumer searching for on Google and what landing page did they look at? And so we could see things like, hey, this particular consumer is looking for premium major league baseball content. They got to a landing page that had a bunch of information about premium major league baseball content. Agent picks up the phone and is like, hey, how's it going today? If you sign up for a two-year subscription of DirecTV, we got a special where you get 15% off, you know, our premium major league baseball content. And the consumers like it's like this moment of serendipity they're like oh wow that's that's amazing that's exactly what i'm interested in what's interesting is their sales conversion rates when they did that doubled And so it's that opportunity to bring all those things together. And that's kind of the core of what.
0: Yeah, I see how important that is, especially when you're aligning the marketers to the contact center. I'm just going to speak about my wife. When she's looking at something, you know, predominantly when it's a higher cost ticket, she will want to speak to someone at the company, you know, and she'll start at a search or start somewhere. So I imagine the cost of the ticket using your solution is quite higher than others because it is touching a contact center. Is that something, is that true? It's completely true. And and the thing that
1: I think there's a ticket element item to it. So like one of my favorite customers of ours is barbecue guys. I don't know if either of you are into grilling or outdoor barbecue. I'm, oh, I grew yeah. up in the South. I love grilling. And barbecue guys actually has this amazing combination of digital and human interaction where I'll give you two examples. Like four years ago, I was my old Weber kettle charcoal grill that i had had for like 15 years. Finally, I needed like a new one. And I went out and I read through all this great content that barbecue guys had about the three different Weber kettle grills. And initially I was going to get the most expensive one. And actually when I read the side-by-side comparisons, all the details, like, you know what, I only think I need the middle one. And so like their digital content helped inform me to make the right buying decision. And Weber kettle's like 100, 125 bucks. So like I read that, I was like, oh, this is great. I got the product I need. Two years later, based on all the raving reviews of a couple of friends of mine, I was looking at getting a Traeger, which is a $2,000 grill. Yep. Now I called in and I had a conversation with somebody from barbecue guys, because what I think about a lot in the buying process is how do you give the consumer confidence? When I give you an example of with my wife, David, so we're going to Italy for vacation this summer and we're getting family photos done. And so of course, what did she do? She organizes outfits for everybody in the family. And she orders like three of everything. And then I tried the three things on and I'm like, how's this look? What do you think about this? And then we send back the two that I don't like. That's all about confidence. It's all about being confident. Reading reviews is about confidence. Being able to buy things and return is about confidence. The problem is we have a lot of customers in the cruise space. When you decide to go on a cruise for your 50th wedding anniversary, there's no returning a cruise. You can't send that back from the UPS store to Amazon the next day. So it's all about what can you do to get that consumer over the edge, to give them the confidence to make that buying decision. A lot of it has to do with emotion. I think a lot of it has to do with think about a mortgage when I got my first condo in San Francisco. I was an MBA who'd worked at Boston Consulting Group. I could do the math all day long and all the Excel spreadsheets that I needed, but I wanted confidence that I was getting the right product and that it was going to close in time. And so I think as you get into these bigger, more complex items a lot of times how do you give the consumer confidence? How do you make sure they feel they have all the information they need and they feel confident, you know, they're making the right decision.
0: Wow. The favor that you've done for the CMOs to be able to recognize this revenue that they weren't able to recognize before by their advertising and theoretically be able to spend more money on certain places that they thought weren't effective.
1: Completely. We find this all the time where you'll find their keywords on Google or other things that, just you think weren't performing that suddenly perform. And I would say in most of our customers, the industries that we serve, the contact center drives 60, 70, 80% of the revenue. And so, especially in today's environment, I jokingly said, I was at a Google event with a customer a few weeks ago, and I jokingly said, the CFO used to work for me, but suddenly in the past six months, I now work for the CFO. (laughs) And CMOs are the same way. So like you need to use every bit of data that you can to show the impact that you're having on their organization and to understand what's working and what's not. So you can be most confident about not spending money blindly, but spending money with the best data to make the most optimal decisions. Yeah.
0: Going back to your Salesforce days where I met you, Salesforce disrupted the enterprise software industry in a mammoth way. And that was, you know, the culture was just fantastic. And it started at the top with Benioff. He really instilled that entrepreneurial environment. Be held accountable don't be afraid to make mistakes because that's how we're going to learn and how we're going to grow as a company. And what it really did, it created this ecosystem of folks that after a certain amount of time, they left right to when they grew, they left to build something up and with that in mind and to take risk. And my question to you, Greg, is your 10 years of experience with Salesforce, how did it shape you as a person, as a professional, and how did it inspire you to reach higher and have the confidence to take on a CEO role?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. Number one, actually, I'll get emotional for a second. The thing that is most amazing to me about my Salesforce experience is the people are just absolutely amazing. The community of folks that are at Salesforce today and who have left Salesforce, folks like you, David, generally, I think are deeply bonded by the experience. Many of them are very, very grateful. They recognize how lucky they were. We all worked really hard, but I think we all look back on it and recognize we were very fortunate to work at a place that was having tremendous industry-wide impact at that unique point in time. And we're grateful for that experience. And I think a lot of people are very motivated to help and engage with others as a way of sort of paying that back. The thing that I love most, and I think this came directly from Mark Benioff, I actually said it to our executive team the other day. We have this saying at Salesforce called, beware the eye of Sauron. And I'm not a big Lord of the Rings fan, but if you know Lord of the Rings, the idea of like the all-knowing eye in the sky. And the thing that was amazing about Mark that always struck me was his ability to zoom out and think in five to 10-year timeframes, but then to zoom right back in and be at a very operational level of detail way down in the weeds. And when we would make the joke about the where the Eye of Sauron, part of that was... I had the good fortune on a couple occasions to work on products that were sort of the apple of Mark's eye. So one of them was a a product called Chatter that was like a predecessor to Slack. We competed with David Sachs' company Yammer back in the day. And Mark was obsessed with this product. And it meant we spent a lot of time with him. He told us like, we need to build this thing faster, go get more teams on it. And we went from like three teams to six teams. And we came back and he's like, you didn't hear me. I said more teams. And we went like from six teams to 10 teams. But his ability to go way down into the detail, like he would go look out on a web page and he's like, "Hey, I want you to look at the last four words in this sentence like this sentence is the main value prop for your product. What about these four words? And at the time the company is like a two or three billion dollar revenue company this is like 2009, 2010, 2011 and his attention to detail, his ability to what I call like zoom in, zoom out and I think The folks who are vintage, old-school Salesforce, they are operators. Salesforce was always known in the industry for running a monthly sales cadence. There was no like, oh, we'll do fine this quarter. Like It was every single month. What did you do this month? I think Salesforce people just have this ability, influenced by Mark, very heavily to step back and think about the big picture, but also to really dive in
0: deep and be close to the detail. And really prepared you.
1: Yeah. And I know for me, like that's one of the things that I take a lot of pride in at Invoca, and I really emphasize with our executive team, is I try to find the right level of giving people space to make their own decisions. But then what I try to do is I try to go inspect the impact of those decisions. So where this comes most... To the forefront with me is spending time with customers. And if I'm thinking about like a product decision or a sales or customer success decision that affects the customer, I want to provide the executive team the freedom and the accountability to go make those decisions. But then what I do is like, I go all the way to the end and I talk to the customer. And I'm like, how is this? My first question anytime I see a customer is, how is our team serving you? How is the product doing? And it is my way of quality checking all the decisions that have been made between me as CEO and the customer and saying to the customer, you're ultimately the verdict of truth on whether these decisions are working or not working. So what is your perspective on those things? I would say one thing in adding, at least in my experience, we're pretty much a remote first company now. We've closed all of our offices, save one. And one thing that I worry about a Zoom remote first company is losing sight of the customer because everybody's like me today. You're in your own room, you're in your own little universe. And so for me, I'm always trying to make sure that we as a company or customers Connected back to like, what is the customer experiencing? What does the customer want? How do we better serve the customer? Because I do worry that in a remote, it's easier to lose some Mm -hmm. of that sense of connectivity with the customer.
0: You wrote fondly about some of your Salesforce times in Half Moon Bay, about the visits, the monthly visits to your old office, and you've built a really successful culture. I mean, a lot of string of awards around a group of employees that love working there, that love being parents there. Have you changed into becoming a remote first company that's still Successful at having that kind of culture.
1: Yeah, Robbie, I'm going to give you kind of a funny in ways I don't know stuff. <laughs> and I got really lucky. You know, it's funny looking back on becoming a, a CEO for the first time in 2016. I realized there are all these due diligence questions I should have asked that I didn't, and I got really lucky because the inherent DNA of our company matched my inherent DNA. It was kind of like going on a lucky blind date. Now there are things that I definitely have tried to do since then. So. I give you another great example of something I learned at Salesforce and David will remember this too. So we both had the good fortune to work with a gentleman named Scott Dorsey, who was the CEO of Exact Target. And one of the things that I really love that Scott did is every Friday, he would write a note to the whole Exact Target company when they were independent and then to the marketing cloud sort of business unit that they became. And so I started doing that. I was like, hey, that's a good CEO. He does that. I should do that. And so I started doing it from my very first days in VOCA. And Robbie, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and say, I'm so grateful that you write that note every Friday. Thank you very much. And my reaction to that is like, don't thank me. I'm just doing my job. I learned from watching other great CEOs. And that's just kind of my expect. That's the bar I hold for myself. So I think a lot about communication. I think communication and transparency and alignment was something that Salesforce was very good at. So I certainly think that helps. I would say, Robbie, it's, 40% 40% action and ten and 60% good luck, which I know is not a great answer, but that's part of the reason I'm super grateful I ended up where I did because like the company feeds off my personality and I feed off the company's personality. And it's this really great symbiotic relationship.
0: Yeah. Just a remarkable story. And the best is really yet to come for you and your company. It's, as I say, I truly believe that you're in the first and second inning of a, a long ball game here, what you could accomplish. And With all your experience, as you articulated really well with Salesforce, the last seven years being CEO of Invoca and growing it wildly, what have you learned the most?
1: I would say, I'm going to go back to my earlier point around communication. I'm somebody who takes communication very seriously. Like If I think about the amount of time I put into it, I feel like I put a lot of time into it. I hate sounding egotistical, but I feel like I'm pretty good at it. I studied international relations in undergraduate and graduate school. So I did a lot of writing in my past and it's something that I've always done relatively well and I enjoy doing it. So I put a lot of time and effort into communications. Despite that fact, I am consistently amazed how much information gets mixed up, especially as the company
0: is is growing.
1: (laughs) When I joined, we were about 100 employees, we're now 400. And I'm realizing that I need to do more and more emphasis around getting things out of my head and making sure they're well understood across the company. Part of that's hard for me too, because I don't think of myself as a very top down leader. And so sometimes I hesitate to just take things in my head and be like, this is what it should be. I sometimes struggle because I'm like, haven't we talked about this five or six Mm -hmm. or seven times? (laughs) And you realize that people just process information differently And again, in today's age where you've got Slack messages coming from all different directions, you've got emails coming in, you're on eight Zooms a day, like it's easy for things to get lost in people's head. So I think one big thing for me is communication. I think another one is finding the right balance of empowerment with clarity. And I think for me, I really lean towards empowerment. And I've actually had people in the company say like, I think we'd be better off if you got what was out of your head more clearly down for us and in some cases it'll just help us go faster if there's an area that you know well just like tell us what to do an area that i'll mention i think it's a really complex area in a lot of software companies is pricing a lot of people don't have a lot of experience in software pricing i was fortunate to do pricing on a number of different products at salesforce i worked in pricing software in my time at BCG. And so pricing is an area I've leaned into. I have a much better sense and much more experience to draw on than a lot of people in the company. They're better off if I'm just like a little bit more directive than I like being. So finding that balance with also, I try really hard to create space for people to give me feedback. I say to employees all the time, like I can't solve a problem that I don't know about. And so I really try to make sure people feel comfortable talking to me about things. I always know that my title will make people hesitate. But I try to make it as clear as I can that there's opportunity to give me a read because as a CEO, one of the things I worry about most is do I really know what's going on in the business or am I getting like these filters of people telling me things that I want to hear as opposed to what's really going on. So trying to find ways to build relationships through script levels and random meetings and, and just really trying to be open to what people are saying so that I can have a very real sense of what's going on in the business. Because if I don't have a real sense of what's going on in the business, I can't help improve
0: it. Thoroughly impressed with Greg. Yeah, $100 million of ARR with 400 people, which in my mind means that you clearly have a disciplined approach to growth. Yeah. And talk about that because there's too many times where I see companies with half that revenue and more employees than you have. Clearly doing something right.
1: Yeah. If I go back to the symbiotic relationship between me and the company, our company was founded in Santa Barbara, California. So if you haven't been to Santa Barbara, I highly recommend it. It is an absolutely beautiful place to go, but I think we're a little bit different in that we're not at our core, a Silicon Valley company when it comes to culture. Like I would say we're a very innovative company when it comes to technology. I always say like, you know, you have companies that are sales and marketing driven like Salesforce and companies that are product and engineering driven like Google I would say a product and engineering driven company. I think we never really got caught up in the excesses of what was going on in Silicon Valley. We're always a little bit more down to earth in ways I would say it's hurt us because we're not as well known. Like we raised our last round of equity financing about a year ago. And a lot of the investors I talked to said, Hey, it's my job to know all the companies that are approaching hundred million in ARR. And I know all of them and I haven't heard of you. What's up? But the benefit over the past year has been we've always been pretty grounded in aligning our headcount growth and our expenses to revenue. And so I would say, you know, when a lot of my friends from the Bay Area would meet my work colleagues, they would say, oh, like, you guys seem a little bit like a Midwestern company. Ironically enough, we did an acquisition a few years ago of a company in Chicago, and it went incredibly well. And I think part of the reason is that the cultures weren't as dramatically different as if you had a high-flying downtown San Francisco. We're going to have Japanese, Mexican, Italian, French, and some other flavor of lunch. You can pick one of your five different lunches amongst our hundred employees. Like we just never got into that mindset. And I think that's helped us be disciplined, which two years ago probably hurt us and people would kind of laugh at us. And today more people are like, oh yeah, that's the way you should be responsibly running a business.
0: And you stuck to your values and culture, which is really important with success. Being that you're an AI company, and now that Generative AI is bringing so much noise into everywhere, right? Where do you see AI evolving with Generative and the chat GBTs of the world?
1: I'm going to go back to the two vectors of our business. So in the contact center, I just think it's an acceleration of a trend that's been going on over the past four or five years. Certainly, there's been a ton of work done in the contact center where 70 to 80% of contact center actions are through voice, 20 to 30% are through digital. So like email, text, and AI really changed over the past five or six years in letting you take a lot of the approaches that you'd use with understanding unstructured data through email, text, tweets, things like that, and applying it to voice. And so that's been really fast moving space. It's been a space that we've been very excited to be a part of. And I think you're just going to continue to see more and more automation of the mundane in that world. So uh, things like contact center agents used to be that you get off a call and then you spend 10 minutes writing up all the details of the call. Well, now AI can really take care of that work for you. So you can focus on that human connection and that interaction with the customer, providing more capabilities through digital self-service or conversational IVRs for people to execute quick and easy transactions without having to go to an agent. So I think there it's more, I would say an accelerating progression of a fairly well-known trend. In marketing, it's gonna be a crazy new world. A lot of our business is aligned to what's going on in search. So one of the things I do as a CEO is I listen and watch very carefully every time a good earnings to understand what's strategically impacting their business our customers are big spenders on Google. So I want to understand the mindset of the customers that we have. actually have a conversation scheduled later this week with an old friend who used to be an analyst who's now at a headless CMS company. And what we're going to talk about with her is like, what's the future of the website? What does it mean in a world where chat GPT or other models can sort of continue to aggregate more and more data from the website, bring that to a central location. What's that mean if you're a brand in terms of the more content you put on the website, the more you're enabling off-brand property interactions to happen? And how do you distinguish your own one-to-one first-party interactions with consumers? And so I feel like in the digital marketing world, there's so many more unknown unknowns Whereas in the contact center world, I think this is just an acceleration of some fairly well-established trends. So for me in in marketing, like I'm just, I heard Scott Belsky from Adobe speak a few months ago, just a brilliant thinker, really great guy, New York, New York based, like one of you New York folks. And he was talking about Adobe's focus on protecting and enabling the creative economy and the close connections Adobe has to creators and content creators. And how do you protect intellectual property. The analogy I used so I was trying to describe it for my wife as I'm like, you know, if you like wine or you like cheese, Italians, the people who live in Parma are very, very attached to making sure the world understands the authenticity and the uniqueness of true Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. And if you're from Bordeaux or Burgundy, you're very attached to making sure the world understands the importance of a wine that's grown in Bordeaux. And creators are going to be the same way because it's like, Hey, how do I understand where this is coming from? What are the origins of this? How do I think about labeling, and how do I think about world where information? I'm like, is this synthetic? Is this real? The marketing side of this equation, I think, is just. If you find the answer, Dave Robbie, please let me know, <laughs> because it's just moving so fast, and I think it's such discontinuous change from what we've seen over the past decade.
0: You know, a couple other things with generative AI. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the biggest opportunities for Invoca and generative AI?
1: Yeah, but I think on on our side, a lot of it is orienting around how do we continue to inform and improve this interaction handoff between a digital experience and a contact center agent experience. I give you a couple of examples. We started doing, again, this kind of referred to the difference between marketing and the contact center. We started doing work around conversational IVRs a year or two years ago where marketer is thinking very closely around a consumer is interested in a certain product. They're doing research on the website. As a first point of escalation, they reach out to a contact center. Most contact centers are capacity constrained. So there's a question of how quickly you can have an agent get somebody. Another example we run into a lot, contact centers are closed between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. usually. And marketers spend money on google and facebook 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year we started providing more capabilities for marketers to actually start to drive the initial experience speaking with a conversational ivr and so a lot of that is using these ai technologies a lot of that ai technology being used again to kind of understand key elements or insights from the contact center live conversation How do you feed that back into the marketing world? I'll give you an example. We work with a lot of telecom customers every year in September, new iPhone. I call in and have a conversation with a wireless carrier saying, hey, I'm thinking about switching carriers. We've got four iPhones. What would it cost if we all moved over from provider A to provider B and would we get new devices, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm in that conversation and I probably won't make a buying decision. Like I'm just doing some research. And then I go to that company's website and the first thing they have on their homepage is a promotion for the new Android device. I just physically told you <laughs> we're an iPhone family. Like I've got four Apple TVs, I've got iPhones, we've got AirPods, like I physically told you what we want. So using the AI capabilities to transform that data and put it in a highly structured format where I can go take that data, plug it into Adobe Experience Manager and make sure that when I hit the homepage, oh, actually we know who you are, we're gonna reflect that human to human conversation and what we're doing. So. I think in ways, there's a lot of perception that generative AI is taking the human element out of things. Like you can do more with automation. You can throw a bunch of content at Jasper, and Jasper is going to help you come up with like whole new blogs and landing pages and content for your website. Part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to use AI to embrace, enhance the humanity in the relationship. How do you elevate the human touch and use it to connect it better with all the digital interactions? But I certainly think there's a lot that's happening in the generative AI world around digital and digital content as well.
0: That's amazing. Usually we end the podcast with a couple of questions about you as a human. Tell me something that maybe your employees don't know about you.
1: I have to start with the thing that you know about me that all the employees know about me, which is I have a huge sweet tooth. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tactic I use at business dinners all the time that is a combination of personal preference and uh, CEO practice. Like you realize as a CEO, anytime you're in a room, like people are waiting for you to talk or you to make a decision. And I very deliberately do not talk a lot. One of my sayings I use in our executive team is CEO prerogative, which means I'm going to go last because I know the minute I say anything, everybody else is going to change their answer. So when I'm out at business dinners, I always, there's that moment of awkwardness after dinner where a waiter comes up and says, would you like a dessert menu? And everybody's kind of looking around the table and I'm always like, yes, always order and employees joke around me that I have a big sweet tooth and it's because I always want dessert. That's like 70% of it. But 30% of it is, I know that gets you 30 more minutes of conversation with a customer. And if a customer really wants to leave, they'll tell you, but if they hesitate, that's actually a sign that they want to stay. And, we were at dinner with a big telecom customer a month or two ago. And like we'd had dessert and I could kind of tell like people weren't finished talking. And I'm like, can I see the dessert wine list? And everybody's like, there goes Greg again. I'm like, <laughs> My dad, I know why you think I'm doing this, but why I'm really doing this is I'm trying to make sure that we get more time with the customer.
0: And what is the dessert of choice?
1: I do not discriminate. I love them all. No, I'm a huge fan of ice cream. I actually did a year of grad school in Italy. And so I am a devoted fan of gelato. I thought about, When I was in business school in Philadelphia, a woman had opened this amazing new gelateria about four blocks from where we lived. And I was debating between year one and year two of business school. Do I do a summer internship at tech company or do I do a summer internship at the gelateria, learning how to make gelato? I chose the tech company path part of me really wishes that I had chosen the gelateria pack. I think it's safe to say <laughs> you made the
0: right choice. I,
1: well, you know,
0: like,
1: <laughs> for a long-term career I ended up in the right place, but my gelato making skills are as good as they could be,
0: so, uh, yeah. Well, you know you could do? You could have your kids and get a piece of real estate and have them open up a gelato ice cream store.
1: <laughs> I'm excited because we're in Italy this summer. I've already scheduled a gelato making class with my middle son, who likes to cook, and myself, and I won't reveal whether I did that for him or I did that for me, but Greg, let's just
0: say both of us. Greg, I, I, saw, I saw a video of sure. you entering stage in a space uniform. And I'm curious <laughs> whether, how much being a parent has influenced the way you are as a willingness to make fool of yourself.
1: I'm so glad, Robbie, you said that last statement. One of the statements I always say is, part of leadership is about one's willingness to embarrass oneself <laughs> and just not take yourself too seriously. Yeah, there's actually... There's two funny videos. I'll send you another one. That was actually for a a company kickoff that we did during the COVID era. And we had sort of a space theme. And so I took the musical theme from um, the Space Odyssey movie and put on a space suit, which I don't even know why. Uh, They sent me one of our marketing teams. And I like walked up. Is it this one where like I walked up in our backyard and it looked like I was coming from outer space? Even better when as somebody on our marketing team, we were doing a launch event around our contact center product two years ago. And they wanted to talk about performance and data. And they found this awesome speaker a woman who uh, graduated from Stanford, studied engineering, and now is a professional race car driver. And they wanted me to do an opening skit about, because I'm from the South originally, how much I love NASCAR. And the funny thing <laughs> is, I don't know anything about NASCAR. Like I've
0: never been to that. Really. so
1: our product marketing lead had all these lines talking about like, you know, when Jeff Gordon got in a fight with such and such, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I'm like, okay, I'll go along the roll. That video is on YouTube. I cannot tell you how many business meetings I have taken with bankers, partners, whoever it may be. And one of the first things they'll say, or maybe at the very end after the meeting, they're like, hey, Greg, like we saw that you're a huge car racing fan. Like I love car racing too. What did you think about XYZ? And I always have to reveal to them, like, I don't know anything about car racing. That was actually all a big practical joke. But I think, Robbie, like being a parent just teaches you their more important things in life. And I do think part of being a good leader is being willing to embarrass yourself in front of people. And so I think my kids get a good laugh out of that and probably help teach me not to take myself too seriously.
0: Amazing. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today. I thought this was just a fun conversation with great insights from a great leader. Who's doing yet uh, another successful stint with disrupting category and just making people better, making people more productive and solving problems as they're coming and just rolling with the punches? And as I said before, Greg, for you and for your company, Evoca, I truly believe the best is yet to come. So I just wish you the best. You're a great human. That's if I'm going to explain who Greg Johnson is. Great human, number one, then great CEO. Probably you would say great dad, which I'm sure you are the best. But thank you very much. I really appreciate it.